welcome to the next episode of the Shane Walsh podcast. So today's episode is a really, really useful one for everyone in January because I think a lot of people are trying to go on fitness journeys, running journeys, health journeys in January, which is great to see so many people out and about during January. And one of the big things that a lot of people are trying to do, I know a couple of my clients are trying to do, is do couch to 5Ks to get moving and or even start running. And that is why I invited Evan Lynch on. Evan and I have been talking a good bit on social media over the years and we have uh, we we decided to record an episode so evan is a registered dietitian and the creator of the southeast nutrition clinic and he has a team of registered dietitians clinical nutritionists and performance nutritionists his whole thing is and his whole ethos is to aim to bridge that gap of knowledge between nutritional science and daily choices they find an approach that works for the client they've worked with athletes they've worked with a lot of lot of big people who who are quite famous in their own fields and sports and very various different sports and they're going to give you realistic advice they're going to get give you in the simplest way and that's a sign of a great coach so i'm delighted to have everyone on so we talk about will i be a better runner if i lose weight we talk about his journey of recently getting a diagnosis of adhd we talk about fats versus carbs, what, what's better for running. We talk about how to carbo properly. We talk about supplements that will be beneficial. We talk about why hunger goes up. We talk about how to deal with injury setbacks. We talk about electrolytes. We talk about tips to start running. And we talk about how to na- nail your New Year's resolutions. There are so much more in this, but it's amazing to hear an open and honest journey about ADHD because I know so many people are getting diagnosed with the now and a lot of people are going underdiagnosed. But I want to say a massive thank you for Evan to share his journey. I really hope that you enjoy this episode with Evan. Evan, how are we, sir? All good, Shane. Thanks very much for having me on the podcast. No worries. Thank you so much for coming on. I know we were kind of chatting for a good while. Sometimes we can forget to actually press record sometimes. It's just, it's interesting. I think it's kind of nice in the run up to Christmas to actually kind of we're both feeling very nostalgic uh, yeah. at the end of the year. Uh, so anyone who isn't aware of who you are, Evan, can you kind of explain what you do on a, on a daily basis? Uh, yeah, sure. So I talk about food a lot and I talk a lot about how, you know, people will come to me with big goals, big aspirations. I, I seem to spend a lot of my time talking to people about their goals and telling them you need to rein it back a little bit. And maybe you can relate to this. I know I've done a consultation well with someone if they're mildly underwhelmed after we speak. It shouldn't be novel. It shouldn't be exciting. Diet is self-care, keep brushing your teeth, combing your hair, that type of stuff. Um, so that's kind of what I spend my day doing. A little bit of social media-ing. I have a podcast of my own. I do some clinical work because I'm a registered dietitian. I'd see some patients in nursing homes. Bit of variability in there. So a little bit of everything. Generally, the context is always about food, nutrition, adequate fueling, a little bit of research thrown in for good measure. That's fairly full on as well for you. Like it's it's you're very passionate about what you do because you work with lots of general population and athletes as well. Like and that's and that's a big thing. But you've had a massive change for yourself personally in the last in this year. Can you explain what's kind of what's kind of going on? Yeah. So. I think on some level I knew about this for a while, but in, I think it was August or July, I got an ADHD diagnosis, currently awaiting a potential ASD diagnosis as well. If I put money on it, I'd say I'm you know, positive for both. So it, um, first of all, it's a big hit to your identity because, you know, 
you know, you're not just Evan, you're Evan and you have this and possibly another thing. But it made me take stock. And the more I read into ADHD and executive dysfunction, difficulty planning, not being able to do multi-step, multi-step tasks, lack of dopamine, it actually occurred to me because I'm like this, because I'm neurodivergent to a degree and I personally struggle a lot to do what on paper is very simple, brushing your teeth, eating your breakfast, making your dinner. It actually makes me really class at this job, like really, really class, because I understand both academically and personally all of those things. When a patient is struggling and says something like, I just can't seem to eat my dinner. Maybe it's because the ingredients are invisible to them if they're in a press or a cupboard and they can't see them. Maybe it's because the act of making dinner, first of all, you have to decide what you're going to have. You have to check if you have all those ingredients. If not, then you might have to go to the shop. So like something like making a dinner, which it should be easy, it could involve eight different organizational steps in a sense. So I get all that. And because of how I have to approach my life, the advice I give is ridiculously straightforward. It's ridiculously pragmatic. So a lot of my a lot of my clients and patients will tell me that it's the most straightforward advice they've ever gotten. And do you know who Connor O'Keefe is? Because yeah, I've had Con- I've had the joy of having a chat with Connor on the podcast. Okay, well, me and Connor are good friends, and um, I I'm the sports nutrition behind all the mad endeavors he does, and. He titled, I was on his podcast, maybe it started here. He titled it Keeping It Simple with Evan Lynch. And that because of my ADHD and potentially other stuff, that's how I roll. I have to keep it very simple. And I don't know if you relate to this. Patients sometimes conflate simplicity with ineffectiveness because we're just spat the idea that diet has to be hard and it's definitely complicated and it's just not true. Yeah, but I I had a conversation. One of the last conversations I had this morning was <clears throat> a client was kind of like, so you're telling me I can have chocolate every day? And I was like, yes. And she was like, it can't be that simple. I was like, it is. It's like, if I tell you right now not to think of a pink elephant, what are you going to think of? And she goes, a giant pink elephant attacking me. I was like, that's essentially what you are telling yourself every day with chocolate that you can't have it. And then you beat yourself up for not being able to match up to that ideology. And she's like, oh, I was like, yeah, but we've had it so far every single day and we've been working together for two months and you're a decent bit of weight down and you're feeling better. Your PCOS is being managed. Everything's in a much better place. So tell me again why we can't have chocolate every day. It's it's an interesting one. I think that's that's a common trope. And like, you know, you can insert bread, insert spuds, insert nighttime, anything into that kind of framework. And the way I look at it, when people come to guys like you and me with seemingly simple goals like weight loss, I want to improve my health, I want to look like X, they come in thinking, well, I want to make that change, but they have a preset of beliefs and axioms to make that change. Here are the things that I have to do. I have to do that, 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 and that. And here are the beliefs I have. And it can be difficult for us to know what are the minds you're trying not to step on. But it's often something like chocolate or biscuits or bread. And 
the way I look at it, that's an anxiety. Someone is anxious that if I eat this food, it's counterproductive to my goals. Yeah. Because I'm not where I want to be. Eating this food is actively undermining me. And I feel bad about that. And you just build up the body of evidence, kind of like you described. Do the thing, show you it's not a problem, then you get over it. And, you know, I heard a good phrase recently. You can know something, but that doesn't really make a difference. Fuck it. Like, I mean, I'm a dietitian and I, I haven't eaten an apple in maybe three months. I, you know what I mean? No, yeah. I know I should. But the actual experience, the application, experiencing those things, eating the chocolate every day and realizing that you didn't have all these negative outcomes, that's significantly more important than someone saying chocolate is fine or an influencer saying eat chocolate, food freedom. That means almost nothing to someone unless they go and do it, you know? Yeah, it's kind of like now. It's kind of we're recording this before Christmas. It's kind of like a lot of people going onto onto their pages and then like what eating a day posts or like. But before that, they stick a picture of their arse up or they kind of say, "Well, if you eat this, you'll be fine." Or here's a stick of fat that I'm going to wave in front of social media. So this is not where you're going to gain if you have some foods. Like, but these things are great as an ideology. But sometimes and often the execution is the hardest part for someone. Like we all know that rationally, like it is about kind of what you take in and what, like how many calories you take in and how many calories you kind of walk as a basic construct. But that's, that's too, that's too simplistic. Like that, 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 I always say, I talk about the kind of like a 97, three weight loss strategy, but what's the first thing someone's going to do on the 1st of January, they're going to increase their exercise. But the, and that's only about 3% of the equation. What they forget about is their beliefs, their habits, their mindset, their awareness, their relationship with food. That's the other 97% that people don't work on. Yeah. And then if we work on that a little bit more, which is unsexy as hell, you will be in a far better position in three months, six months, 12 months. But too many people will be like, well, I want to lose weight ASAP. It's like, well, you can lose weight at ASAP, but you'll probably put it back on ASAP. So it's kind of like, which one do you want? Would you mm -hmm. want contentment and finding peace? I had a conversation with one of my clients yesterday who was on the podcast and she said something. I was like, I'm so glad she fucking said it afterwards. She's like, the, the way I'm feeling right now, I've realized that the ideal body that I've wanted was a lot heavier than I actually thought it was. Mm. And I was kind of like, holy hell. Like that's, that's when I do think when people listen to that episode, I kind of like, I really do hope that hits home because I, I often do think that's the thing. It's like, well, we think that we're going to be happy when we get a certain weight. We're not. Yeah. It, it, I think that's a common way that people measure their self-worth and self-esteem. Yeah. It's kind of like measuring your bank balance to tell you how good you are in bed though. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's a, uh, it's not a good metric and you know, segue to sports i'm primarily known as a clinical sports nutrition specialist that's yeah. my thing. really high profile athletes or really complicated athletes type 1 diabetics ibs patients bds who are trying to do elite sport if you take an athlete imagine the pressure that's on them athletic identity having a lean appearance even the fucking clothes they wear the things they say the types of instagram posts they make being an athlete is almost a performative role and you'll have athletes coming to training or 
then have a goal, maybe be it Olympics, Commonwealth Games, national championships. And in the back of their head, they don't think about any of that when it comes to diet. They can have those big performance goals and have a big price tag in terms of fueling. And their approach to diet is, I know I need to lose weight or I need to be as lean as possible. And like those two things are totally antagonistic to one another. That's a very difficult, um, uh, what would you say, sale to pitch to an athlete because they almost fear weight gain or like they have this idea and it's totally arbitrary. Like they pluck it straight out of their arse that I need to be, you know, to be a brilliant whatever. And it's like when you ask them, like, well, where did you get that number? I had a grown adult professional cyclist say to me, I need to be 56 kilos. She's currently 60 plus. I said, why? When I was 18, I won a really good race. That's what my weight was. It's like, yeah, it's eight years ago. You're, you're three inches taller, probably. Do you know what I mean? It's a total apples and oranges, but it, it can get really complicated. And I, I personally think if you just go through the, the MSC route for sports nutrition or whatever you do to end up working as a sports nutritionist, you are not trained to deal with that at all. I think yeah and no, I agree because I, I like I would say and I have said this like when I came out of my PT course I came out more confused um like there was no how to actually talk to someone mm-hmm. and I would find myself as someone who would be quite relatable and be approachable I do think that probably stood to me a little bit more when I was on the gym floor that you're able to have a little bit more crack with people be able to talk to people be a little bit more relatable rather than being six back Pete as a robot. Yeah. Like you can all look like if you want it, like you can look great and all that kind of stuff, like massive credit to you. But if you actually can't understand why your client does something, it's going to be really hard to work with that. Like I'm not saying you need to change everything about your client or whatever it may be, but it's about understanding where they're coming from and actually not being a dick. It doesn't help if you're starving yourself to get up on stage. You can't possibly be at your optimal levels if you are starving yourself to get up onto a stage and your clients get impacted. Your mental health gets impacted. Their mental health gets impacted because they're probably walking on eggshells or energy, just like everyone else. Yeah, I I think that's that's a tough one. And like just this week alone, right? I had a real high level boxer, 15 year old, young guy coach wanted him to box at 54 kilos he was naturally 60 kilos came into the clinic with his mom at 57 constantly hungry he's cold i I did a skin fold on him with you know consent and all that but there's nothing to lose and i'm looking at him as like unless you chop off one of your hands you're not going to be 54 kilos like it's not happening he didn't want to hear that that to me was me telling him, your season is over, buddy. Try again in 2025. And that, that is effectively what the outcome will be for this guy. But that's not that's not my fault. And I think as a coach or as a dietitian or a sports nutritionist, me, because I'm a healthcare professional, I have a duty of care. I can't flop over or gloss over something like that and say, take their money, fuck it, they'll be grand before and after picture. Like I literally can't, I'm legally can't do that. Morally, I wouldn't do it anyway. 
but I very often am the person who has to break that news to someone that, listen, <laughs> I know you really want to look like Arnold Schwarzenegger, but you have erectile dysfunction right now. This is not working. We need to change tack. Long term, we can get there. But right now, you need to let this go. And if you're struggling to do that, well, maybe that's a sign that there's something else going on here and we need to figure out what this is, what this is actually really about. And that, that's a real tough conversation to have. And just, I think, experience and reaching out to other professionals. Like I follow Shannon Beer quite a lot. Shannon's class. Yeah, I've had Shannon on. Yeah, Shannon's amazing. She is. And I've had to do things like that to be able to have conversations like those in a competent manner you know, in a professional manner, because it's it's really hard to navigate. It, it's the toughest part of my job is when you see someone coming in, they've really set on a goal and you can see that this is coming from either mentally a very negative place, either that or they're describing elements of an eating disorder that they're not aware of yeah. or affecting their health. And you have to say, well, <laughs> here's what I'm seeing and here's my concern. Here's what I think. I think your goal is at the moment most admirable and whatever. I think it's harmful for your health and that we should reevaluate. And it's interesting you said that like ethically you're not able to, but I think morally was the biggest word I took out of that. That's kind of like have yeah. those open, not being afraid to have those open and honest conversations because there are people out there who are maybe working with people who they shouldn't necessarily be working with who aren't qualified to work with someone. Like I've not, I've got kind of like a, like people that I would send out to people, if you know what I mean, like therapists or physios or whatever, I'd kind of recommend different people. I'd be like, oh, I'll stay in my lane on things. But I do think that comes with a little bit of age, maybe and a little bit of more like um, not being afraid to actually say you don't know everything yeah it's okay not to know everything mm -hmm. yeah um we've spoken about nothing that we planned to do so far <laughs> that all happens you know if you had given me a script it would have been the worst podcast ever yeah and i was, I was kind of looking at the questions and i was like we have covered nothing <laughs> um no but i think it's i think that's an important topic for us anyway i just wanted to have a chat about it anyway um if people didn't find it interesting, I don't really care. Um, so I know one of the big things that people will try to do now for January, and I've already had clients already trying to like that are talking about doing maybe couch to 5k in their local GAA club or the local athletics club. And I know there's a few questions kind of coming in from them, and these are basically the questions that have either come from them or based off some of the content and podcast episodes that you've done already. Mm -hmm. So we'll start off with kind of like We'll try to answer these as quick as possible, but with as thoroughly as possible. Okay. Will I be better if I lose weight uh, as a runner? Not necessarily. So the performance pie for a runner, like if you imagine as a pie chart, it's a fraction. Now, use, I guess, common sense here, listeners. If you are morbidly obese, genuinely morbidly obese, you probably have scope for weight loss and you probably might need to lose weight for health reasons, whatever it might be. If you have a significant amount of weight to lose, yes, you will be a quicker runner because VO2 max is relative to body weight. On paper, that should help. 
if you are already reasonably lean, healthy BMI range, you have a training age, you're not new to the sport. Mostly people who ask this question have somewhere between one and three kilos to lose. Almost certainly not. The cons in, let's say, athletic populations versus lay populations. I'm going to focus on athletic populations for a minute. If you look at athletes, and an athlete is someone who trains consistently on purpose, that's the loosest definition I can think of. Generally, the perils of weight loss, being in the deficit, the inevitable low energy availability or periods of low energy availability that come with that, that can have a counterproductive impact on, say, recovery, explosive strength, power, speed, endocrine function, sleep, mental health, even gut health can be affected. But if you have someone who is gung-ho on weight loss, despite, you know, reassuring them that, look, losing one to three kilos probably won't make a difference. You're better off focusing on recovery, strength, speed, power. There's a way to do it safely using energy availability cutoff points. So I'll, I'll very briefly explain energy availability because I, I don't want to make this a Reds episode because I know that's not what it's supposed to be. Yeah, yeah. But if you take men and women, if you know your body fat percentage, just I'll use an easy example. Let's say you're 100 kilos and you're 20% body fat. So you're 80% not body fat or fat-free mass, right? If you want to take the lowest safe calories for a guy, it's 30 times your fat-free mass plus training costs. For a girl, it's 45 times your fat-free mass plus training costs. That's generally what I will do with a patient who is looking to lose weight and is very physically active because that is the calorie intake threshold where it's the lowest number you can have without any impact on your health. Whether that results in weight loss or not, let's see. But I wouldn't go any lower than that. I like that. No, it, I, and as you said, it, it, it's this is about fueling yourself and then you can kind of adjust it. The weight loss thing is secondary. So I really like that kind of that mentality of it because I think too many people, it's human nature. Like we're told to look a certain way and weigh a certain thing from for, from a young age. Uh, like a lot of people are predispositioned to kind of diet culture. So it's kind of like you're told that you need to be a certain weight. Um, what would you say in relation to kind of sticking on the feeling point and these two foods can scare people, fats or carbs? in order to kind of feel yourself better for, for, for running. Herbs all the way. Anyone who says otherwise is either not uh, qualified to have an opinion on it or simply incorrect. <laughs> one way to shut it down. <laughs> no, no one seriously debates this anymore. I'll, I'll explain why, right, for the few people who are annoyed listening to this, because I know it's contentious at times. RPE, rate of perceived exertion, when you're fueled versus not, is 15% lower. So there's that. If you look at professional athletes, people who are the best at burning fat and aerobically the most efficient, if you have those guys fat-fueled versus carb-fueled over race distances, I'm, I'm going to focus on endurance, that's where I mostly live, they're about 10% slower. 5-10% slower was the range, 10% for most people. This is professional athletes who already have that cellular infrastructure in place. If you take someone who's not optimized metabolically for endurance work or sports, fat versus carb fueled, it's night and day in terms of actual performance. 
the next line of kind of inquiry or rhetoric people will take is if I do faster training or if I avoid carbs in training, when I take them on race day, they'll be that much more efficient. And the idea there, it's like if you don't drink alcohol for a while, then you do. It's more potent in a sense. That's something I hear a lot. Interestingly, if you are an athlete and you, you go on a high fat diet, you develop peripheral insulin resistance within seven days. And ironically, that idea that if I train fasted and race or compete carb fueled, you actually are too insulin resistant to use the carbs on race day. You just end up with high blood sugar that you can't get into your cells, right? So there's there's that. And then we get to the reds piece. This is the big one. If you do lots of low carb training, number one, you're more likely to have immunosuppression. You're more likely to suffer with iron metabolism because it, it amplifies hepcidin release after training. You're more likely to have a stress fracture. So for ladies in particular, having a glycogen availability, and that, that basically means, let's say you eat 300 grams of carbs, but your training costs roughly 250 grams of carbs, you're left with 50 for bodily function. It's the carbs left over after training is factored in. For ladies, a number of less than 130, 130 grams of glycogen availability is enough to contribute to osteopenia and osteoporosis. Almost instantly, you'll see bone turnover uh, increase. So muscle or not muscle, bone mass can decline within days of engaging like that. So if we if we look at it clinically, fats are harder. They're, we, the exercise feels harder. We perform worse. Using fat as a fuel source tends to have a payload of health issues, both short and long term. Clinically, there's, there's no rational stance you can take to say this is objectively better. So basically, carbs are class is what I took from that. <laughs> yeah, I just felt the need to explain that. Um, <laughs> no, yeah. but like, it, it, but I, I'm delighted you've kind of said like the, the 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 pros and cons of it of both approaches and kind of said right, but this is the way to do it. Um, because I think those two foods can be stereotyped and kind of can be there can be a stigma to them. Um, and there are people out there who kind of can talk on both sides of the camp of kind of saying carbs are better or fats are better. I perform better on fats and perform better on carbs. I wouldn't be able to play a football match on a Saturday morning without carbs. Like no. Thursday and Friday before the head of the match is all about water and carbohydrates. Like without those, I wouldn't be able to play my matches. I want to point out one difference. Football is generally high intensity. Yeah. It's highly glycolytic, requires lots of carbs to pay for that. Endurance athletes, which is, again, that's my niche area predominantly. It's what I'm known for. It's what I was. Endurance athletes, if they're training easy in low zones, where they're predominantly using fat as fuel, the intensity and the level of inertia to put one foot in front of the other or to spin your pedals is so low that even if you have really shitty fueling tactics, you can do it. And what I see with professional athletes, because I've seen their view to max data, when they are training in easy zones, they're burning maybe 10 to 12 calories per kg per hour. Most of it's fat, but they're still zipping through 100 grams of carbs an hour when they're going easy. So the idea that I'm only going easy, I don't need the fuel, that's not true. But the fitter you are, 
the more able you are to kind of walk yourself, run yourself, recycle yourself into your own grave because you're better able to manage training without the fuel. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. Interesting. Um, the next question I have is why does hunger does hunger go up when you start to start running from say if someone's going on a couch to 5k should they expect their hunger to be going up yeah generally yes appetite will typically increase with exercise but i don't see it as an as a common thing okay. you're, you're burning more calories that homeostatic model of calorie control appetite signaling suppression ghrelin sensitivity and all that in theory yes in reality exercise because of the level of a fight or flight response you get with that can suppress appetite after you you train for a while but here's the kicker most people who come to me have a problem that's why they're there very few athletes who are already flourishing come through my doors because why would they maybe maybe i'm biased and i just see the people who are having problems if you take someone who's grossly underfueled or let's look at someone with anorexia nervosa in the first few weeks of having an eating disorder or being very underfueled, which relatively achieve a similar level of deficit, depending on the person's calorie output as an athlete, right? You have massively elevated baseline cortisol levels and catecholamines, which in itself totally suppresses appetite. So when you have low, low calorie intakes and little to no carbs or inadequate carbs, stress hormone levels shoot through the roof because you're struggling to maintain euglycemia. So you're, you're, you're releasing all that cortisol to break down glycogen. That's an appetite suppressant. So hunger is very rarely a brilliant metric for an athlete to establish whether they're fueling well or not, because if they're already grossly underfueled, the level of stress response they have, it just totally dominates and distinguishes hunger. Like anecdotally, when you're really stressed or anxious, you're not hungry. That's the same thing, just on kind of a more extended basis. Okay. No, I, I know when, say, if you haven't, from my own press experience of when I have kind of haven't been doing much and then I kind of start to go into the running side of things, my hunger definitely does go up. But it's also because I haven't been doing much and I'm exerting more. It's kind of like your car isn't going to be burning petrol sitting in the driveway. I think in healthy people, that's the case. Appetite and yeah. exercise could be linked because my my role is kind of rehabilitating people who have unhealthy diets i only see people who have gone over that cliff edge and would have appetite dysregulation as a common side effect okay i get you and what about the whole mechanism what about the whole idea of electrolytes because i know Hydration is a massive important thing just to kind of get through the day anyway, but really is really important for getting to performing to the, to the best of your ability as well. How important are they? Um, I think they are important, but I think the population that tends to overuse them is not the population they are intended for. I'll explain. We are, I assume you're in Ireland, Shane. Yeah, yeah I'm in Dublin, yeah, yeah. We both live in a Western world country, right? The average salt intake in Ireland and other Western world countries is eight to 10 grams a day, depending on what country you're in. It's 166 to 200% times the recommended daily intake. Most people, it's fair to say, who engage with sport 
would fall into the category of average person. They're not athletes. They don't have massive training loads. So if we think about that for a second, sodium is the predominant electrolyte that we care about in sports contexts. People generally eat twice as much sodium as they require. Excess sodium is causative of high or not high cholesterol, high blood pressure, kidney issues, highly correlated with stomach cancer. For me, there's little rationale for the majority of people to use high dose electrolytes or to be very gung ho on them for a start. If we look at clinical populations in sports, so high level athletes, they've done modeling on this sodium requirements to maintain normal natremia or normal sodium levels at sports. It's really not what you think. People love to talk about the saltiness of their sweat, sweat sodium losses. That's a red herring. Okay. We care about your serum sodium levels because that's what's um, biologically speaking more important for a whole host of reasons. Muscle function, respiration, nervous system function, heart function. It's central to that. And I'll preface this. This this was supposed to be a very straightforward question. I know, but bear, bear with me here. I'll preface this by saying that the average sweat rate in an endurance athlete is 1.2 liters an hour. Okay. People can't replace that level of fluid intake. So the assumption is as someone engages in exercise, even if they're hydrating, they're getting cumulatively more and more dehydrated, right? Because of fluid losses. With that, when we see dehydration, the two clinical markers of dehydration are high sodium levels in your blood and elevated urea. So someone who's getting dehydrated has high sodium levels. If you're an average person, you're an average sweater and you can drink an average amount of fluid, five to 600 mils an hour, you don't need any or many electrolytes to keep your sodium levels steady in exercise bouts up to 10 hours in duration, right? But here's, here's the difference and this is where it's counterintuitive. Let's say you're at the lower end of the sweat range, which is 400 mils per hour, and you're able to drink four to 500 mils of fluid per hour. You are, relatively speaking, diluting those electrolyte stores. So you're not getting dehydrated. You might actually even be gaining positive fluid balance. So your sodium levels, if you're a low sweater in your blood, get more diluted. Whereas if you're a heavy sweater and you get more dehydrated, they get more concentrated right? The low sweaters and high drinkers are the people who need high dose electrolytes, not the heavy sweaters or moderate sweaters and average drinkers. It's totally counterintuitive. And if, if you, as I often do get confused in this, start from the basis that we care about serum, blood levels of sodium, not sweat levels of sodium. And that's what you draw back to all the time. So to answer your question, most people display gross overkill with sodium clinically when i put my dietitian hat back on that's a bad idea and then i have to think well it's never been studied but in healthy athletic populations who are not elite does overuse of electrolytes have anything to do with blood pressure kidney issues long term without an, a kind of an abundance of evidence on that specific question i have to treat them like normal clinical populations like we would in a hospital setting that your sodium levels are too high, you need to get them down. 
I, I, I think people probably need to listen back to that as well because there's a lot of technical information in there as well. And I think it is really useful um, for, for people at all walks of life, whether it be an athlete or just general population as well. Um, in relation to someone who is looking to start running in the new year, what would be the two, maybe three top tips that you would give them uh, in relation to kind of starting to run? Don't approach sports nutrition with the healthy eating pyramid in mind. Sports nutrition and healthy eating look absolutely nothing alike. And the two things you would take away and do, you want to have high glycemic index or sugary carbs before and after training to both pay for and recover from your exercise. So that looks for most people like a big bowl of Cocoa Pops or white toast with jam pre-training. Good choice, Cocoa Pops. But that can be triggering for people. They're like, wait, what? Cocoa Pops or white bread, sugar. I'm Mm. like, yeah, that's how you pay for exercise. Same kind of thing afterwards. Quick sugar hit within 20 to 30 minutes. It really promotes recovery levels. And because I can see people cognitively struggling with that idea that it kind of goes against everything they know about diet, that I must eat healthy, sugar is bad, white bread is the worst, cereal is made by big pharma, whatever it might be. The rationalization is, well, around the time you exercise, we want you to have a really high glycogen availability. But also if you're worried about diabetes and all that type of stuff, which is fair enough, when you exercise and for about 20 to 30 minutes afterwards, your insulin sensitivity, glucose transport and glycogen synthesis rates go through the roof. They go through the roof. So you would find that any sugary things that you do eat are hoovered up instantly from your bloodstream to support all of that. So my my impression and understanding is something like a leukosate sport, when used appropriately in and just after exercise, will not contribute to diabetes in the way that sugar-sweetened beverages like Coke, 7-Up, Fanta, which have similar nutrient profiles, will. It's not called leukosate couch. If you drink those things when you're just watching telly, you might have a problem. Sugary things around sports, grand. That's a leukosate couch. I think there's a new brand in there somewhere. I like that one. Um, I like that one. Yeah. yeah. Um, the next one is kind of the supplements. Are there like one or two supplements that you would kind of recommend that aren't going to cost someone a fortune or should they be just focusing elsewhere? Kind of depends on what sport they do. Creatine is generally a good shout for most people. That's, yeah. that's a common staple. If they don't have any renal abnormalities, go for it. Otherwise, the other one I commonly come back to would be vitamin D. So vitamin D requirements in athletes are up to five, 10 times higher than gen pop, especially in winter, especially in Ireland. So that that vitamin D deficiency is quite prevalent in, in athletes of, of any ability. Um, for specifically for performance, you know, you can look at things like beta alanine. If you're doing events where lactate accumulation is a problem, even ultra endurance events of cramping is a problem. That'd be a pretty common one I'd recommend. And then otherwise for people who get bad cramping, pickle juice. That's actually a legitimate thing to do. 
I've heard of the Big Up Juice, all right. I've heard of is there there's another one, Cherry, the Cherry Char- Juice, Cherry Active. Yeah, that would be kind of a recovery thing. Yeah. So if you have DOMS or issues sleeping, Cherry Active can be really helpful in that setting. I have yeah, I have used it with people who have sleeping problems. From a purely performance based point of view, there's like five supplements that are really evidence based: creatine, beta alanine, caffeine, uh, citrulline malate, and beetroot juice everything else is a kind of it probably won't be that brilliant or there's no need to take it okay that's yeah, pretty solid advice um okay and the last question i'll ask you is how would you set, how would you advise someone to nail their new year's resolutions because there's going to be a lot of them The internet's not broken. Evan is thinking. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Whatever you have in mind, dial it back about half. So yeah, that's good advice. Yeah, I would say that's good advice. Like the idea, and I used man, I used to do this. I'll never eat biscuits again, or from now no more bread. That's like saying I'm going to just start being left-handed from now on. When you're right-handed, you're not going to suddenly change as a person. So. Pick a small thing, the smallest thing that you think you can do that has the biggest impact on your life. Just some examples from patients this week. You drink sugary drinks. Could you try sugar-free for a start? You cover your food in oil when you're cooking it. You're trying to lose weight. Could you swap that to spray oil? Can we make that a habit? Realistic things like that. It should be very underwhelming. People should be kind of disappointed when they ask you your news resolutions and you tell them they shouldn't be exciting. Yeah, they're off on that. And like, yeah, and I, I like the advice of actually whatever it is, dial it back by a half. And if you are still on that half up until March or April, maybe you can change it and address it that way. You can check in yourself every month. Like I know I've got targets here and written ahead of me for like 2024 and I looked at the ones 2023, I think 80% of them were hit. But the ones that I didn't hit, I didn't really make a plan to fit them in. Like I didn't really try. So it's the ones that are actually more important to me from looking back at it. They're the ones that were hit. The other ones weren't even attempted because they were unrealistic. Like one, as I said to you off air, like two of my main goals or one of my main goals were having two phoneless workless holidays so it's the same thing again it's just repeat that again this year it's not going to go well i'm going to double that this year to make it as doubly as hard as as possible but it makes a massive difference like we can't do our job if we're not recharged yeah that's true that's true um bear in mind you're asking someone with time blindness like i have no concept of the future at all the future it, it means i'm only this is all i have right now and like the next five minutes i never know what's happening after that unless it's in my calendar so that's that that simplicity point is really important so it's when i when i say things that, that people are like it's so simple i could have said that like yeah but you also know vegetables are important but you still don't eat them you know so like pick pick a simple thing and just leave yeah. the egg it is. It, it, often, what happens is the most important things and the most and are the sim are the simple things like KISS. Keep it simple, stupid. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, Evan, thank you so much for for coming on. Where can people find out about you, and where can people can work with you and find out about the podcast? Yeah, so the podcast is called the Fuel Better Podcast. It should be on 
pretty much all platforms at this point. On social media, you can find me at Elinch Fitnot, sports dietitian. And I'm rebranding at the moment. So if um, if you're looking to find us to work with us, you can reach out to me on social media or you can link in with me through the podcast. But we'll be rebranding to the Southeast Nutrition Clinic for the new year. So I'm based in Clonmel, hence the name. And um, we have weight management programs, performance nutrition programs, and an all year round consultation clinic that's both in person and online. We do a lot of public speaking and workshops as well. So there's, there's a lot we can cater to. We like complicated cases. To keep it interesting. Very much so. Yeah. Yeah. I, like to yeah. I can relate to that. Uh, Evan, thank you so much for, for coming on. My pleasure, Shane. Have a nice day. Massive thank you to Evan for coming on and sharing his amazing journey and massive thank you to Evan for sharing some really, really useful information there as well. So if you found this in- episode interesting at all, please do share it up on your story. Please do tag Evan and myself up on your story. Please leave a review up on iTunes and Spotify. The more reviews, the more people can see it. And there's some pretty cool announcements kind of coming up in the next few months and weeks. Uh, so keep an eye out of that as well. So please review, please share, please pass the pod. And thank you so much for for listening.